They were the best baseball team in the early 20th century. I'm referring to the 1918 Boston Red Sox. They went to every World Series from 1915 through 1918, and they won two of them. In fact, they ended up winning the first or five World Series out of the very first 15. Their victories, to a large degree, were due in part to the great pitching and the powerful hitting of an orphan boy from the slums of Baltimore, whose name was George Herman Ruth, also called Babe Ruth or the Bambino. Now, following the 1919 season, uh, in which the team did not make it to the series, the owner, Harry Frazee, was in deep financial trouble. And although Ruth led the majors with 29 home runs, which means more then than it does today, uh, he sold Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees for $100,000 cash and $300,000 to go against the mortgage on Fenway Park. From that point in time, roughly 1920, until the end of the 20th century, the Yankees went on to dominate the game of baseball, winning 26 World Series. The Red Sox won zero. Oh, they went to the World Series in 1975, 1986, but they lost both of those in heartbreaking fashion. Some of you could care less about all of this. <laughs> but that 80-year drought, I'm making a point, that 80-year drought was called the curse of the Bambino. Boston indeed felt that they were cursed, that nothing that they could do would change the situation. Oh, they tried to remove the curse. They offered to give the money back, made public apologies, and even hired Babe Ruth at the end of his career to come back to Boston, but nothing worked. Now, the curse in Beantown indeed was superstition. But I am amazed that the Bible uses the word curse so many times. Have you noticed? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3, the portion of Scripture we read a moment ago. And from verse 10 down through verse 14, the word curse is used five different times. And this is not superstition. This is not wishing the misfortune of another. This word curse literally means that you are under judgment that you have been rejected, that indeed misfortune of an eternal nature is coming your way. Now, if you read uh, the scriptures here, the first 14 verses of Galatians, which we don't have time to read, there are two words that seem to jump out at you. You've got the word blessing and the word curse. And so we want to look at both of those. The blessing, what is it? How can I get it? And the curse, what is that? And how can I get rid of it? Because the truth of Scripture is we are all under a curse. We begin reading in verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone 
who does not obey all the things written in the book, that is, to perform them. But when you go down further, you'll notice in the text that there is, or actually before, there is the word blessing. Verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel before to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So let's look at the blessing, first of all, as it comes first in the text of Scripture. You have to understand that Paul is writing to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. It's not one church, it's multiple churches. And we read in verse 1 that these Galatians are acting in a foolish way. Who has bewitched you? The literal, literal Greek says, who put the evil eye on you? which was a common way to speak of a, a spell being put on someone. Uh, Paul is not saying that an actual spell has been put on them, but they're acting as though they have been bewitched and they are in a trance. And so the idea is, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put the evil eye on you? Who has caused you to leave Jesus? who was portrayed publicly before you as crucified. This one thing I want to know, Paul says in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer was obvious, a rhetorical question. They received the Spirit by faith. If so then, why are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected, that is, earn your salvation or even complete your salvation by the works of the law, by the works that you do in your own flesh. And so the Apostle Paul is very concerned about these people who came to faith in Christ and now they're wanting to earn their salvation instead of trust God for their salvation. And those are two entirely different things. One of the best ways to illustrate a truth is to embody that truth in a person's life. It's easier for us to grasp an idea if we can see it lived out in flesh and blood. And so Paul uses the illustration of the greatest hero that the Jews have. It's not a baseball hero called the babe. It's Abraham, verse 6. Even so, Abraham, remember him? And all the Jews would nod their head. It was reckoned to him as righteous. And he's referring now to something that took place in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. Abraham was not justified by doing the works of the law for the very simple reason the law did not exist. And the circumcision that the Jews were talking about in fulfilling the law and pointing back to Abraham as the example, that doesn't take place until Genesis chapter 17, some decades after he believed God and he was counted as righteous. Paul's argument is this. Abraham is the one who shows us we can only be justified by faith and not by keeping the law. So righteousness or justification rightness with god is received by faith 
but it's also revealed in the gospel. Look at verse 8. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by works, preached the gospel before to Abraham. And so if someone asks you, is the gospel in the Old Testament, you need to answer yes. It was preached to Abraham. And it's the gospel of faith, not of works. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 12. All the nations, God said, will be blessed in you, Abraham. That is, you are going to be the father of the faithful. You are going to pave the way for people to get right with God by simply believing. And when you believe, the blessing includes justification, verse 8, just as if I've never sinned which also includes the righteousness of God given to us, making us holy and perfect. And then jumping down to verse 14, the blessing of Abraham also includes receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit. So God calls us blessed. It comes through the gospel, which is believed by faith, and it involves receiving the Holy Spirit. That, my friend, is an amazing blessing. And that's what all of those who put their faith and trust in Christ receive. Now, why would you turn back from something so complete, so incredible, so amazing as the gospel? But then Paul begins to talk about this idea of the curse. Verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law, that is, those who try to be justified before God by works, they're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, that is, to perform them. This is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27. And you have to remember that Deuteronomy was written just before the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River and went into the Promised Land to take it. And Moses wanted to remind them of the law of God. They had disobeyed God and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Now they're regrouping before they go into the promised land, and Moses says, remember the law. So in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, he divided the 12 tribes of Israel. Six went on Mount Gerizim, and six went on Mount Ebal. And what did they do? They recited the blessings and the curses of the law. So the Apostle Paul is actually becoming a New Testament Moses here as he reminds them that there are blessings and there are curses. The curse comes from a broken law. That's what Deuteronomy says. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that the law requires. If you do not obey the law perfectly, you're under a curse. Your theory of the atonement of Jesus Christ must include a curse. There's a lot of people who don't like that. They want to get rid of the curse of God. And someone will even point out, uh, the, the scripture here says the curse of the law, not the curse of God. Well, my friend, the apostles would make no distinction because the law is the law of God and a reflection of his holy nature. 
There's no need for us to be embarrassed by these words, the curse of God, because a holy God, if he is righteous and just, must punish wickedness and sin. The difficulty is that the creation of God, God, these people that God wanted to have fellowship with, in whose image we are made, we rebelled and broke God's law, and the broken covenant incurs a curse. And you and I are cursed. I'm not talking about a superstition. I'm not talking about some magic spell. I'm talking about being rejected by God. If obeying the law perfectly means justification, then breaking the law means condemnation. Verse 11, now, no one is justified by the law before God, and that is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Here's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2. It's so important that it's repeated three times in the New Testament. Here in Galatians, in the book of Romans, and also in the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. Say it with me. The just shall live by faith. And each verse almost seems to emphasize a different word. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so each time the scripture emphasizes it over and over again that the way to find God's favor is not by doing, but by trusting, because you cannot do enough. Actually, the purpose of the law is to show us our inability. But notice in verse 11, he talks about faith. In verse 12, he says, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices the law shall live by the law. If you want to go the way of the law, fine. But you have to obey it completely, not partially. It's not pick and choose. It's the whole thing. Remember James chapter 2, verse 10 Whoever keeps the whole law but breaks it in one point is guilty of all. You're a lawbreaker. How many crimes do you have to commit to be thrown into jail? I mean, you break one crime, you don't have to break them all. Just one. And How many links of a chain do you have to break to break the chain? Not every link, just one you become a lawbreaker. You see, this is a pass-fail test. There's no in-between. This is like parachute packing class. <laughs> How do you know you pass if you're still alive after the jump? Well, so-and-so did it better. Than it doesn't make any difference. You pass or fail. And that's the way the law is. So none of us, we need to understand, none of us can perfectly keep the law. So it is a mercy that Jesus comes down to this earth and keeps it for us perfectly. You say, well, then why does Jesus say? And by the way, Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which we see in our scriptures, he who practices them shall live by them. Jesus was talking to a lawyer. He said, how can I have eternal life? How can I get into the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you know the commandments? He says, I do. He says, do them and live. 
That's what Jesus said. He quotes Leviticus. Now, he didn't quote it because he knew the guy could do it. He quoted it so the guy would find out he couldn't do it. Have you ever been working in the yard, maybe with your child, and the child wants to help out, little child, and the dad's hauling around 50-pound bags of fertilizer, and the child says, I want to help, and the dad says, no, you can't. You're not strong. No, I want to help. And finally, the dad, in frustration, says, okay, go over there and pick up one of those bags and bring it to me. Now, the dad doesn't say that because he thinks the child can do it. Why does he do it? He's frustrated because the kid thinks he can, but he's got to show him that he can't. So God says to us, you want to be justified by the law? Okay, he who practices it shall live by it. Give it, a sh- give it a shot. See how you do. And we come back as the little boy comes back to his father saying, I can't do it. Yeah, that's my point. We cannot do it without the almighty grace of God. You cannot be justified by keeping the law. It's impossible. So here's where it really gets good. Christ becomes a curse for us. Did you see that in verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. Paul just keeps quoting from the Old Testament. If you were a criminal, you would be not only executed, but embarrassed when you were executed by being hung or simply by uh, being hung on a tree or sometimes stoned, which was the other method of the Jewish execution. So it was a cursed death we're talking about. And Jesus became the curse for us. That's why in Isaiah 53 it says, he was smitten of God and afflicted. In fact, it says, we considered him smitten of God and afflicted. This is what's behind the cry when Jesus is on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer, Jesus, you are cursed. You have become a transgressor. And he took our sin upon himself and he died the death of a transgressor. The price of redemption was alienation from the Father. Why have you forsaken me? Because, Jesus, you are accursed. In the language of the Apostles' Creed, this is when Jesus descended into hell. There is penal substitution, which means suffering. And there is divine satisfaction, which means God is pleased with the sacrifice of his Son and accepts it as payment in full. And so then we read, because Jesus became a curse for us, the curse is gone. We have favor with God, that's our position, and now we desire to have fellowship with God. Favor with God is trusting the work of God. Fellowship with God is us doing the work that is pursuing Jesus by reading the scripture and praying and putting off sin and trusting him. And so the Bible tells us that there are two ways. You can try to get just before God and earn his favor. There is the promise of the law that you will have life if you do it. 
But how better is the promise of faith simply embracing what Jesus has done? The person who lives by the works of the law says, I will work to gain God's favor. The person of faith says, I will trust the work of Christ to gain God's favor. And those are your only two options. One ends in total death and another in eternal life. In the 1800s, there was a well-known tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. He actually had the French name Jean-Francois Graviette. He was famous. In 1859, he walked across a tightrope three inches thick, 160 feet above Niagara Falls. And he ended up doing that 15 times. He walked across blindfolded. He walked across on stilts. One time he walked across with a stove, stopped in the middle, cooked an omelet, ate it, and came back. (laughs) This guy was a showman. Another time he put his manager, Harry Colcord, on his back and walked across. In 1860, the Prince of Wales was there at Niagara Falls the Prince of Wales later becoming King Edward VII, and he watched Blondin go across Niagara Falls. After he crossed, Blondin suggested that the prince allow him to put the prince on his back and walk across. The prince said, I believe that you can do it, but I politely refuse. (laughs) You know, that's the difference between really believing God and saying you believe in God. Do you believe that Jesus can save you? Yes, I do. From the pit of hell? Yes, I do. Hop on my back, Jesus says, and you say, no way will I have you rule over me. No way will I bow humbly before you. No way will I turn from my sin and embrace you. I believe, but I won't trust you. And we've got a ton of people in America who attend Bible-believing churches just like that, like this who are unconverted believers. They believe up here, but they've never committed their heart to Christ. What about you? Well, there's good news if you're a Boston Red Sox fan. In the year 2004, they won the World Series. Final out of the World Series, the curse is gone. And here are just a few pictures of them celebrating uh, as they mob the pitcher on the mound. Because when the curse is gone, it's time to celebrate. Those who know that their sins are taken away rejoice. And it was said in the newspapers that the Boston Red Sox went from cursed to first. And those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ go from being cursed to blessed. And I wonder if you're in that number. Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, a blessing and a curse. Now choose life. Let's pray. Maybe you've come to this communion service today and you are a believer, but you've never trusted Christ. By that I mean you believe Jesus can save, 
but you've never cast your soul upon him to save you. You've never been willing to part with your sin to embrace your Savior. Well, this is the moment God puts before you life and death, a blessing and a curse. Which will you choose? Lord, I pray that many this morning will say, Dear Lord Jesus, save me. Speak in the quietness of this moment cause people maybe for the first time with genuine faith to cry out to you save me from the curse of a broken law and a just God and make me right justified before the Holy Father Lord I know that if people pray that prayer or a prayer like it with a sincere heart you will never turn them aside but you will take them in and may they not leave this place today until it happens. I'm going to dismiss you in just a minute. But if you want to talk to anyone about your personal faith in Jesus Christ, there'll be counselors down here at the front. And I urge you to do so before you leave. Heavenly Father, take us from this place with genuine faith in the finished work of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.